So we've got a fight in the corner. Drager is going at it with one of the Cyclones. Good battle there. As it's Eric Gannon on Drager. It looks like he's trying to start a chainsaw with a series of rights. Finally, they're all locked up. And I think the linesman's saying enough is enough. And that'll be that. Whoa, a good tussle there away from the puck between Eric Gannon and Barry Drager. Nystrom, Nystrom's really getting some good right hands in. Gillies is down with Sandstrom. Somebody better help Sandstrom. Everyone must be held accountable for their actions. You cannot see your star carried out in a stretcher and do nothing about it. Oh my, did Mick plant one on C-Card. Wow. You can't put a bounty on a man's head. I just did. Spinning, spinning, who's he going to go after? The puck drops and Bob Gardner goes right to King Flaxenberg. But just a minute, Al Arbor has won mm -hmm. four Stanley Cups, so don't start telling Al Arbor what to do, you and John Davison. This is Coliseum Chronicles, The Penalty Box, your source for Islanders Enforcer Talk. I'm your host, Joe Lazito. So welcome to episode 62, actual episode 79, and today I present part one of my chat with Barry Dreger. Now I know what you're thinking, Barry Dreger, that's the guy from San Diego, that's the guy from Orlando, that's the guy from Adirondack, he wasn't an Islander. Ah, see, with my self-imposed rules of players that uh, have only played in the Islander organization, that is, except for the Talking Isles Enforcers with series, Barry Dreger, while never being property of the Islanders, did play a few games with Capital District and uh, actually was pretty productive. We'll, uh, we'll get into that, but... Uh, uh, I was fortunate enough to meet Barry many years ago during Dean Ewan's first season in San Diego. There it is again. I feel like I mentioned Dean at least once an episode because uh, I have met so many people through him. That was the first time I'd met Barry Dreger and uh really, really cool guy. And uh, probably the only good thing social media is for is connecting or reconnecting with people, for, you know, especially for people like myself who want to, produce content like this and i reached out to barry really really cool it was uh great to catch up and uh we spoke for about three hours so that's why i am breaking this up into two parts but first and uh, i'm doing my best to streamline these intros uh so but first i will say uh if you are not already please subscribe to the show on whatever platform you're listening to subscription is free as always and you never have to go searching for the show once a new episode is uploaded it will appear automatically in your feed on whatever platform you're listening to and i know some platforms are subscriptions some platforms are likes some platforms are follow whichever it is on the platform that you're listening to please do so in kind you'll never miss a second of this fine program also 
If you wouldn't mind, if you have a second, could you rate and review the show? It just gives the show greater visibility. I'll appear in searches a little more frequently. And uh, like I said, I don't want to take up too much of your time with a review. If you think it's awesome, put awesome. If you think it sucks, put it sucks. Whatever it is, but uh, most of the time the reviews are uh, as long as you want to be. But you can also just rate the show. And uh, I would appreciate a five-star review if you feel I deserve it. It's really up to you. I have no control over that. Social media on Twitter, at Joe underscore Lozito. Also at Kali Sinbin Pod. Facebook, facebook.com slash Coliseum Chronicles Podcast. Instagram, Coliseum underscore Chronicles underscore Podcast. The, uh, all those accounts I gave you, with the exception of my personal Twitter account, all show-related stuff, all Islander and organizational enforcer-related stuff, pictures, birthdays. Uh, for instance, today is Saturday, August 21st. Uh, happy birthday to former guest Kerry Clark. So you would have seen that across all the platforms today. And uh, it's nothing too heavy. You know, like I always say, uh, a lot of people on your timeline went from political experts to disease experts. Now I don't know what are they um, – Afghanistan experts or whatever it is. We have all those friends that think they know everything and they really know nothing. And uh, you won't get any of that on, uh, on my social media. So if you're, uh, if you like the show, definitely check out the show um, social media accounts. And if you like goofy shit, then uh, maybe give me a follow at Joe underscore Lozito. Uh, also, I'm not even going to go into my merchandise too much. I'm going to, this is the part I'm going to try to streamline. If you're interested in Coliseum Chronicles, the penalty box merchandise, please scroll down shortly after, look at my voice cracking, shortly after the description of the show, there'll be two links. One link is for the classic merchandise, classic logo merchandise, and one link is for the alternate logo merchandise. So please click on either one of those or both, get your Coliseum Chronicles, the penalty box merchandise. And... For one week, the listener exclusive discount this week is Dreger20, D-R-E-G-E-R-2-0, Dreger20. And that discount code will entitle you to 20% off your entire purchase in either of the merchandise stores. Either or both, your choice, whatever you order, 20% off. And that coupon code is good until August 30th, 2021. And the reason why I'm really excited about that merchandise is because the logo was done by local Long Island artist Joe Marisich. Joe is available for hire for all your art project needs. Very cool guy. Very easygoing guy. Family man. Uh, definitely worth your time. Insanely talented. You can reach Joe on Twitter at GraphicsJoker or at LoudEgg.com. Very, very easy to work with. I highly recommend him. Definitely check out his portfolio. Now, a few other shows I want to bring your attention to. The OG of the Enforcer podcasting genre, Darren up in Saskatoon. The Fourth Line Voice podcast, Darren, proud member of the Hockey Podcast Network. Two episodes per week. Wednesday, our, uh, Wednesday he brings you his interviews. Sunday is the Sunday shit show. Do not sleep on those Sunday episodes. I was scrolling through. Um, Facebook today and some of the fight groups saw Darren was at it again. Um, I don't know if he recorded the episode yet, but always, always gets plenty of material for the Sunday shit shows from the, uh, the fight message boards 
while well, I guess the fight groups message boards, I'm dating myself, but uh, Darren's latest episode, he released on Wednesday, another chapter in his five toughest opponents series. And this week he interviewed pistol Pete Vandermeer. Pete's a great interview. I know uh, uh, a while back, he seemed like he was making the podcast rounds, including fourth line voice it was a great episode. I urge you to go back and listen. And this time, five toughest opponents. And uh, the interesting thing with that one, uh, he actually says the one guy who he wanted to fight, but it, uh, I don't know if he said he was ducking him, but he always managed to avoid him. I'm not going to let the cat out of the bag. Definitely go listen to the fourth line voice podcast, Pistol Pete Vandermeer, five toughest opponents. Also, YouTube is doing this purge of hockey fight content, but the fourth line voice YouTube channel is still alive and kicking. Definitely make a point to go and do some uh, hockey fight rabbit hole. Rab- what would I say? Hockey fight rabbit rabbit holing? I don't know. Go down that goddamn hockey fight rabbit hole and do it on the fourth line voice YouTube channel. Well over 2,500 fights. Darren's a good dude. And definitely listen to last Sunday's Sunday shit show because he talks about something very important for uh, smaller content creators like him, like myself, like him, and like Alec in Florida, the host of the Five for Fighting podcast. Alec, the kid of the group, the young man, the fresh blood. His latest episode was a Facebook Live episode he did with Sean Pete. Sean Pete, I met him once. It was uh, after a game, and uh, it was a Phantoms game. He was with Wilkes-Barre, and uh, it was in the big arena. I don't know if it was the Wachovia Center back then. Came out, bullshit with him for a few minutes. Uh, he's the kind of guy that uh, he has a six-pack when he breathes. I mean, this dude is in sick shape. Apparently, he's still in sick shape. And uh guy works hard at it, and uh, good for him. Really, really cool guy. Interview was, was first rate. Really, really awesome. And uh, this is something Alex has been doing now. He's been going live on Facebook every week. Uh, sometimes it's a solo episode. Sometimes it's uh, he has a guest. Um, he had uh, the legend, Howie Rosenblatt, on. He had uh, Sean Pete on. I believe he might be live right now as I'm uh, recording my intro, but I'm not sure. So uh, definitely check out his back catalog. But really, go listen to that episode with Sean Pete. It was a lot of fun to listen to. And also... Check out the Enforcer Appreciation page on Facebook. Most of the people on there, good people. You get to uh, chat with the boys who did the job. Most of the people are respectful. And let's just say some of them are fucking idiots. I mean, there's no way around it. But you'll be able to weed those people out really quickly. They're just, I mean, they're just idiots. There's no way around it. Why are you in a hockey fight group if all you're going to do is shit talk the players, shit talk fights? It doesn't make any sense. But again, like I always say, and I'm sure I'm not the only one, uh, social media is a microcosm of society. So, But definitely check out the group. Join up if you're a legit hockey fight fan. Lots of good people in there. So check out the Five for Fighting podcast. Check out the Enforcer Appreciation page on Facebook. Bucket Drop podcast with my pal Bobby Longgrass uh, in hiatus now. I imagine he's going to bring it back maybe in a month or so when training camp opens. Uh, I don't know. I, I think there's... Um, uh, Nate Diaz is fighting in a week or so, a couple of weeks. I don't know. Maybe he'll, t- he'll bring it back because he likes to talk about uh, combat sports and betting. So I'm not quite sure when he's doing a new episode. But in, like I said about subscription, I subscribe to the Bucket Drop podcast. So whenever he puts out a new episode, it just pops up right in my feed. 
Uh, Bobby does quick hit episodes, 20, 25 minutes, focusing mostly on Montreal, Toronto, and Ottawa. But like I said, he does talk about combat sports, does talk about betting. Uh, Bobby's a good dude, has another child coming up on the way, and uh, I'm really happy for him and his wife. Uh, check out the Bucket Drop podcast when it returns. Now, if you're on my social media, especially the Twitter, you've seen me posting about uh, a GoFundMe for a couple of months now. That's my buddy Steve from WhenProbertWasKing.com. Uh, as you know, if you're a hockey fight fan, the website Drop Your Gloves uh, is no longer in existence. We're lucky if we can get morsels of it on the Wayback Machine. But Steve is trying to bring back a similar site. And when I say similar, similar in content, but... Knowing Steve like I do, it's going to be bigger, better, and badder. It's going to be an amazing site. And uh, he reached out to some web designers. It's going to run about $10,000. We are uh, slightly over halfway there. So I would say uh, a few things. One, if you can donate, please go to my Twitter. Click on the GoFundMe. Donate whatever you can, whether it's a dollar, $10, $20. Whatever you can give definitely will help. If you can't give anything, that's completely understandable. But please, Share the GoFundMe because uh, on your your timeline is different than mine. Someone on your timeline may see it and maybe they can donate. And finally, if you're a web designer or you know a web designer that's looking for work, and I mean a legit web designer, not someone that can do uh, Wix or whatever. I mean a legit, you know, uh, computer guy. And you're looking for work. I mean, this could be something that is extra work if you're really into it. Definitely reach out to me or go to whenprobertwasking.com and reach out to Steve. We definitely uh, need this site back. Not just for me, for you. You know you went on it. The players went on it. Coaches went on it. Uh, it it's, it's a big hole that's missing in the hockey fight hobby right now. So please check it out and donate if you can. So uh, just a few other things. First of all, I want to, I don't know what the future holds for Franz Nielsen. Now I know what you're thinking. Franz Nielsen, he's not a fighter. Maybe he's been in one fight in his whole career. Well, I'm a big Franz Nielsen fan. Uh, Franz, as you know, uh, the best damn shootout specialist in the history of the sport. Uh, and a really, really good dude. Franz was on the team back when I had uh, my incident on the subway. And I always talk about how that team really, really took me in and, you know, made me feel really, you know, really pumped me up. And Franz was uh, right there front and center with the boys. And uh, I always have time for Franz Nielsen. I love him. He's put on waivers by Detroit. He cleared waivers. So I don't know exactly what's going to happen. But uh, if this is the end and he's done in the NHL, I just want to thank Franz Nielsen for for everything he did. He was, he was a lot of fun to watch and he's a really good dude. So uh, thank you, Franz, for uh, for the memories. But I hope he surfaces somewhere. It would be nice to see him uh, Nice to see him show up somewhere in somebody's roster. Uh, I also want to congratulate my pal Dave Chazowski, former guest of the show, overall great, great, great guy. Um, Dave has been named the general manager and head coach of the Merritt Centennials of the BCHL. Uh, you've heard me talk about Merritt uh, way, way back in uh, episode two with Paul Cruz. Paul played for Merritt, and uh, for a time, his father actually owned the team. So uh, if it rings a bell and you're not in BC and you're like, "How do I? what do I know about that team? It might be from episode two where I spoke about it with the Cruz missile, Paul Cruz. So uh, good luck to Chizer. Really, really bright hockey guy. Uh, look at his resume, post-career stuff he's done in the Western League. And, uh, you know, I'm happy now. I have a, uh, have a favorite team in the SJ. LaRange Ice Wolves. Now I have a team in the BCHL. Go Merritt Centennials. Good luck to Chizer. Really, really good dude. 
Uh, finally, I just want to touch on one thing, and this is something that I always want to say in these intros, and I never remember until the episode is posted. Uh, if you follow me on social media, you see all the time that uh, I'm posting, especially on the uh, players' birthdays, that I'm looking for uh, a stick of the player or any game used gear. So I'm a big collector. Um, I mean, not there are plenty of people with bigger collections than I have, but uh, anyone you see me post about, anyone that's on this show, uh, I am always looking to add to my collection of Islander organizational enforcer game used items, game worn items. Um, you know, I, I have sticks, I have gloves, I have helmets, I have jerseys. Um, you know, anything like that. Uh, if you have anything and it's a player that you know for sure was a fighter with the Islanders or you're not sure, maybe he was kind of like a grinder, would he be interested? Just reach out to me because chances are I probably will be interested in it. Um, and the worst I could say is, nah, that's okay. And of course, you know, I'm still out of work, still furloughed. So uh, if it's anything of uh, of great expense, of course, I probably would have to say no. But the good thing is, um, with a lot of the players I collect, they're they're generally not too expensive. So uh, so please, if you have anything that you're looking to get rid of, uh, you know, like I said, any game used gear, you know, sticks, gloves, helmets, jerseys, whatever, uh, hit me up, and maybe we can uh, arrange something. The number one priority for me, of course, and I already mentioned them, is Dean Ewan. And, and somewhere out there, uh, years and years and years ago, uh, Fairmore Sports had a bunch of the Islander uh, jerseys that were worn by a lot of the uh, the prospects. And uh, Dean Ewan was number 48. And uh, for a reason still unknown to me, I did buy the blue jersey, the one that he wore in those fights with Louis DeBrusque that were on MSG. Uh, but I didn't buy the white one. I mean, I'm sure it was a financial thing. But somewhere out there, someone owns a home white Islanders jersey with number 48 on it. The name on the back has probably been removed. But if you own that jersey, I'd really be interested in acquiring it. I'm really interested in acquiring any of Dean's stuff. But if you ha And if you have anything, please, you know, hit me up. Uh, but not just Dean's stuff. Anything you may have. Uh, you know, I'm always, always looking to add to the collection and, um, I'll tell you why next week, but, uh, but anyway, let's see how long have I been talking for now? Hopefully streamline a little bit. Yeah. 16 and a half minutes. Okay. So that brings us to my chat with Barry Dreger. Just a few things that you should know about Barry Dreger. Barry Dreger ranks ninth all time in penalty minutes in the history of the IHL. And I'm not talking about the new IHL. I'm talking about the IHL that you remember, that I remember, uh, the one that was was huge, huge in the 90s and uh, 2000s, I guess. Uh, really, really, I mean, it was on TV, especially during the lockout year. Oh, yeah, the lockout year. Uh, and it was big. And uh, Barry is ninth all time in the history of the entire league. Uh, I'll leave you with one other thing. And I touch on it in the interview. Barry Dreger has spent the equivalent of 54 and a half games in the penalty box, 3,277 career professional penalty minutes for Mr. Barry Dreger. Barry, thank you very much for your time. This was a really fun interview to do. And um, that's it, folks. Enough of me talking. Let's get to it. Part one with Barry Dreger. I want to give you a number to start this interview off. 3,277. So you might be asking yourself, what is that number? Well, that number is the 
career penalty minutes for my guest today is career professional penalty minutes. This isn't counting university or junior hockey or anything like that. This is 3,277 career professional penalty minutes, which, well, thank God for calculators. If you do the math, it equals 54.6 complete hockey games. So my guest today, Barry Dreger, those are some staggering numbers. I want to welcome you to the penalty box and thank you for your time. And uh, how's it going? Well, first off, thanks, Joe, for having me on. And uh, things are going pretty well. Been, uh, life's, life's been interesting over the last 20, 12, 24 months, especially with COVID going on and trying to navigate through life and professional uh they're not professional, but youth sports and youth hockey and, and all the above. But it's been interesting, and life's been, you know, very positive. Thank you. Thanks for asking. Sure. Uh, so the first question I ask all my guests, uh, according to Hockey DP, you were born in Winnipeg. Is that correct? That's sir. That's yep. Yes, sir. So if I had a time machine and I could go back to uh, the the little rinks in Winnipeg when and see a young Barry Dreger playing, who were you when you played hockey? And by that I mean I always tell people, and I was playing street hockey in Queens and on Long Island. I was always Bob Nystrom or Clark Gillies. Not that I played like them, but those were my heroes. Uh, who was a young Barry Dreger when he played youth hockey? Sure. Well, you know it's an interesting time period for me when. You know, growing up in Winnipeg, a, a NHL legend, Butch Goring, uh, fellow New York Islander and L.A. King and all over the world, uh, NHL celebrity uh, person in Winnipeg, went to the same high school. Obviously, Butch and I are much different in age groups. Uh, the Islanders were, you know, uh, enjoying tremendous success with four Stanley Cups. So certainly watched Butch a lot and idolized him. Uh, you know, so you, so the local local flair would be there. Uh, I would not say, though, that I was Butch Goring. Um, I would probably have to tell you I was fortunate enough to – I'm the youngest of four boys, and uh, I had a brother that's the ne- nearest to me in age and uh, kind of paved the way and uh, was fortunate. He fortunately played for the Saskatoon Blades for four years and drafted by Toronto. So he kind of paved the way, and I'll be honest with you, I, I, a lot of times I was I was him. You know, it's uh, if I wasn't him, I was competing against him and battling him, and uh, you know, those are good times, and, and, and everybody on the street, we played a lot of street hockey back in those days. Well, and obviously you're saying you're the youngest of four brothers, so I guess you probably got some of your toughness from uh, after-school stuff and battling over certain things at the house, I would guess. Well, you know, it's interesting reflecting back my, my brother and my, our neighbor behind us, which was my brother's age. I always seemed to be the kid that had to carry the football and run through <laughs> the opposition. So I was always with the quarterback, but I was the guy that was always getting tackled or beat up or abused or, you know, all the above. So for me, it was a challenge. And, I, you know, I probably said it's probably where I learned uh, to compete and learn to enjoy that part of, of, of competition. That's excellent. So we're going to jump right into your career. The first uh, first team I have a record of you playing with are the uh, St. Boniface Saints, and that's, I guess, Manitoba Junior League. Uh, is that Junior A? Actually, my, if you're going back to the St. Boniface Saints, I, that would be youth hockey. So I, oh, okay. <laughs> I made AAA hockey as a late developer. It's uh, I, I think my first year was when I was 14. Uh, I was the only player added to the roster after – uh, a guy by the name of Phil Perron took over a team that was – I didn't win a lot of games the year before, uh, won provincial championships and turned that whole team around. And uh, the following year, I was actually the only one to make it and uh, 
we went on to have some success there as a group and uh, learned a lot from Phil Perron. Owe a lot to him. Um, but yeah, Winnipeg Saints, <laughs> those are good times. A lot of growth, a lot of growing, but some good people there, really good people. I always like to bring up those teams for a number of reasons. Uh, first of all, if there was anyone that you maybe played with or played against who made it to pro, but just like you said, where you're talking about uh, Phil Perron, it's it's those kind of relationships you build with coaches and, and maybe just other team officials where you take stuff like that all the way through your career, and it sounds like with Phil Perron that he's one of those people. Yeah, you know what? Phil is great. We I, I had him only one year, but he – made a major impact on our whole team and program. And I, I find it interesting is the following year we were in uh, playoffs, championship playoffs against St. James uh, Canadians. And I, we were down three, nothing in the series. And we, I walk into the rank. He had a different relationship with some of the players that played for him the year before they reached out to Phil and said, Hey, what can we do? Walk into the facility, our dressing room, into the dressing room and he had different, we had different banners put up or sl- sayings. I don't remember what they were, but they were core fundamental sayings that Phil said, like, do this, do this, do this. And uh, interesting story is we ended up coming back from 3-0 to create, to, to, to uh, enter the decisive game seven. And game seven went into triple overtime. And I can remember looking up at, up at Tom Watt. I think it was Tom Watt. Uh, at the time, he was running our decor, and I can remember looking up and saying, I, I don't care if I play another shift. I just want to win. So I didn't play another shift the rest of that that game seven, but we ended up winning and, uh, you know, some really, really good memories. We were fortunate enough. Like I said, we had good players and good teams, and we were we represented the province of Manitoba four years in a row and uh, feel, feel fortunate for um, for that time for sure. How big is it for a Winnipeg kid – to uh, end up with the Brandon Wheat Kings. Well, you got you got to. Re- <laughs> it's good. I mean, obviously, I prior to that, like I said, my brother was with the Saskatoon Blades. I was actually on the Prince Albert Raiders uh, protected list the year, year earlier and went to camp with PA. And then, mm-hmm. uh, you know, probably you know, I had a legitimate chance of making that team as a sixteen-year-old, but didn't. Fortunately, I went back to play for the Saints. And then the Wheat Kings, Bill Shinsky and 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 the staff uh, picked me up. Because back then there wasn't a draft. It was just a protected list. So I ended up playing Brandon. It was close to home. My parents were able to drive over, uh, you know, almost every game. So it was, you know, and it was nice for my family to be able to be, be witness to, you know, my growth and my development. Uh, but also, it, you know, it was it was good for me because I could stay connected to, to Winnipeg and my friends uh, in my senior year of high school and, and uh, you know, go back and stay in touch. So it was good. It was uh, the week my, my – my time with the Weekings was good. Made a lot of friends. We still have. Uh, I'll probably get a, 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 a text message from our Weeking group, which has a lot of very accomplished hockey people and professionals. And it's uh, it was a neat time, neat group too. Well, there's a couple of people that you played with there that I want to ask you about that could very well be in that uh, group of yours. Uh, someone who is uh, who's done very well for himself. One of the smartest hockey people I've ever met and, and really good guy. Uh, and that's Kevin Dayoff. What are your memories of playing with Chevy? Well, so Chevy was, I can remember Chevy coming in at, he played in the Western Hockey League as a 15 year old, I believe he's a year younger than myself. Um, uh, obviously uh, accomplished a lot in the game as a player. Uh, he was the first round draft pick of the New York Islanders. 
and uh, you know went on to have a good hockey career himself. But obviously, his greatest success has been uh, leading teams to championships, whether it's in the IHL or American Hockey League. Uh, I obviously his track record and his experience has been uh, amazing. Chevy's a great guy, like like you said, very astute and intelligent, and has done a great job of, uh, of being able to put good teams together. And then as a player, he was, uh, you know, he was a tough kid. You know, he worked hard. He came from Saskatchewan and a big lefty, and you know, he he fought the biggest guys and the strongest guys in the West Hockey League at the time, and. And, um, you know, created an opportunity for himself to be a player, but uh, certainly done great things in the game uh, off the ice, too. Another player that you played with, someone who I'm, I'm a huge fan of. I met, I've met him a few times. Really, really nice guy. And someone who, whenever I watch him, and, and obviously most of the stuff I see of his highlights are fights, just this guy defines Warrior to me, and that's Jeff Odgers. What are your memories of playing with Audrey? I You know what? My best memory of Jeff Odgers would be after I was traded – Two, I have two stories of Audrey. I got traded from Brandon in my senior year. So we had myself, Cam Brown, um, Troy Frederick, and uh, Jeff Odgers. And we could only have three overagers. So I was the odd man out. And so I got traded to Spokane, which, you know, probably is why I played pro hockey. Uh, but I'm we were on the West Coast swing at the time. So my second or third game was against the Wee Kings. And I can remember step, you know, stepping up on – Audrey in the neutral zone and making contact with him. And I was, when I hit him, I was like, Oh my God, like that's the most solid physical person that I ran in. It was like a wall. Like it was, you know, he was a big, strong guy and warrior is a great description. Uh, amazing teammate. Uh, you know, if you look at Audrey's career, you know, obviously uh, he would be the first to say, I wasn't the most skilled guy, but he's the guy that every team would want. Every, every team would want that player on your team. And you can, you can uh, validate that with being a captain of San Jose Sharks, being assistant captain in almost every team he played for in the national hockey league, uh, speaks volume about his character and who he is as a person and a player. And, uh, I got, like I said, amazing people in that group of weekends for sure. Uh, another guy who you just mentioned, uh, I would uh, dare I call him a Baton Rouge Kingfish legend, and that's Cam Brown. Uh, what were your memories of playing with Cam? So Brown, so again, that whole group, uh, Cam Brown and Jeff Rogers and myself came in together. Uh, you know, another great guy, uh, a great Western Hockey League career, uh, very smart uh, fighter. Uh, both Aji and Brownie put up really good numbers. Uh, you know, it's interesting. Both of those guys would probably be the reason that uh, after my Western Hockey League career, I probably became more of a physical presence and, you know, became more of a known as a filling a role as a fighter because I was, you know, I looked at both of them through my through the Western Hockey League careers and then transitioning into to pro sports. Both of those guys signed contracts out of the Western Hockey League as an overager and you know, unfortunately or fortunately, I didn't. So it was it was time for me to reflect. And, you know, I had to look at what my peers were doing. And both of them had success and had started to move into a positive direction with their careers. And I was like, well, what, what are they doing and what am I not doing? And I needed to find an identity. And both of those players uh, had very uh, were well established in, in, in their identity and they knew who they were. And uh, so I owe a lot to both of those guys for kind of being, you know, maybe not mentors, but teammates that, you know, I was fortunate enough to witness and learn from. 
the, the other guy you mentioned is Troy Frederick. And actually I spoke to uh, Dean Ewan last night. We were talking, I was telling him that you were coming on the show and he, he mentioned Frederick and he goes, you know, that's a guy, he goes, I just remember he was massive and he didn't fight a lot, but he had a reputation where if you got him mad enough to fight, he could do some damage. Is that a, an accurate scouting report? Yeah. Stretch was, he's a big, long, str- uh, strong farm boy from Manitoba. And, uh, Again, super nice, but if you push him over the top, certainly because of his length and his and his, his strength and stuff, you know, obviously he was a dominant force. It was probably not what he wanted to do, mm-hmm. but if you, you know, like everyone, if you provoke people enough, and they, they they're going to respond. So uh, I, there's another player that you know found a way to make it through being physical and 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 using some of their strengths to their advantage, of course. So there's a couple of players I want to ask you about that you ended up uh, scrapping with that year. One of them was Kelly Chase, who uh, you fought three times that first season. And I believe one of those fights was the very first fight in the new uh, Saskatoon building. Uh, unfortunately, there's no video on any of these. Uh, what was uh, what was your series of fights with Kelly Chase like? Well, I'll, I'll go back even further. And I, I still don't know. Uh, when I was with Prince Albert the year early. So that's actually funnier. I'll even go back a year before that. When I was 14 or 15, uh, I went to Sastoon Blades training or rookie camp, which was, I don't even, I don't even remember where it was, but it was in Saskatchewan. And uh, they had like, we were staying in like a big auditorium room and, and, and so that he was there and Cam Brown was there. All those guys were there. I didn't never, I didn't know Kelly Chase at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the following year, I was with Prince Albert, and I fought in preseason, and I and I got my ass kicked, and I still I still to this day not really sure who I fought. I'm like just guessing it was probably Kelly Chase. Um, and so like when I said I got my ass kicked, and I said I can't remember, I had a concussion. I can remember coming out from the room after, and uh, my brother's billets were there, and I was like, what, what happened out there? Like you're not you're certainly not a fighter, are you? And I'm like, <laughs> Now and my brother wasn't known as a fighter either. So, um, so Kelly Chase and I had a long-standing run in the Western Hockey League as it relates to not fighting, but obviously, uh, you mentioned three players on the weekends. Uh, you know, Kevin Cheveldayoff, Jeff Rogers, and and Cam Brown. Those were certainly our heavyweights and the guys that were known to be fighters. And uh, you know, I was trying to find my way and find my identity. So. Um, you know, Kelly was a person that, like you said, I fought on a regular basis. The first game in uh, SAS Place, the, the, ex- the experience and the opportunity to open up the SAS Place was awesome. Uh, it's funny, we have Jason Taylor, who's uh, an agent and, uh, and uh, a longtime friend, uh, just recently said, hey, guys, that was like 30 years ago that we did that. So time passes by quickly, but remember it vividly in regards to being the first fight, it was obviously one of those things. Hey, I wanted to get the first goal. I want to get in the first fight. And I knew in, in, inevitably it would probably be uh, Chaser and myself going in the, you know, early in the contest just to be the first. You know, it's uh, everyone wants to be the first of something, right? So, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Uh, moving forward to the playoffs, uh, you fought a former guest of the show, uh, someone that I know pretty well uh, from Prince Albert. Uh, well, I'm not from Prince Albert. He played with them, and that's Sean Byram. Do you remember fighting uh, Bizey? You know what? I don't remember fighting Bizey mm-hmm. when he was in PA. Yeah, in the playoffs that first year. Yeah, it's, I remember uh, Jason Taylor was scheduled to 
to shadow Mike Medano on that series. And oh, good luck. Jason, well, he did. He did a great job. I mean, he literally nice. he would pick him off up off the uh, as soon as Medano would come out, Jason would jump out and uh, he would shadow him all over the ice, literally in his back pocket. And he would literally skate him to the bench. And in the old key in the Keystone Center, the benches are on opposite sides. So he had to skate then across the ice to get a break to get back on. And so. Uh, awesome series and play against uh, Mike Manano is very special player. Of course. Um, How was the transition that first year going from uh, um, St. Boniface to uh, the Western league? Cause your numbers suggest that it was, it was, uh, I don't want to say easy, but sort of smooth 72 games, 36 points, eight goals. You had the 142 PIMS. And it seems like you're giving credit to your teammates for sort of guiding you along the way. But how did you find that transition that first year? Um, you know, again, the, my, the big, I, I, I coach now I'm involved in player development. And so I, I was fortunate to have a little bit of a setback when I didn't make the Prince Albert Raiders the year earlier. And I had to go back and play a second year of midget hockey, which was the second year that they, they pushed to U 17. So for me entering the Western hockey league as a, as a 17 year old slash 18 year old, I was better equipped and mentally and physically better prepared to compete. Um, but again, this group, we were, we, we were fortunate, you know, if you look back at that team and you start pulling names off that team, you know, we had, we had a very, very good team. We had George Manilock and in goal was another Islander. We had, you know, we had Terry Yake who played in, in played professional hockey in the National Hockey League for many years. We had Terry Man- like we had I think we had three players over maybe a hundred points that year, but we had we had a big we we had a good team. And so when you play with good players and you're on good teams, you know, your stats certainly reflect it. So I like again, I would say transitioning in the Western hockey was good. Maybe, you know, maybe you know, in some ways it was detrimental to play on such a good team, but because I didn't get an opportunity to tr- truly create an identity for myself and, and kind of, um, you know, maybe was behind it a little bit, but, uh, you know, so my stats would say one thing. And I, and again, I'm fortunate when I look back at stats, I go like, Oh my, I had no, had no clue. And, and I think that's the difference between playing today and playing back there was, I was just really fortunate and happy to be, uh, a member of the, in the Western Hockey League and be you know part of part of the pinnacle or the peak of junior hockey in Canada and in, in North America at the time. It was you know a true honor and privilege and and it was fun. It was real, really, really, really enjoyed it. Uh, your second year, there was a coaching change and uh, Doug Sauter was brought in as the new head coach. Uh, was that good for you or not so good for you? Uh, you know, what's interesting is Doug, uh, listen, as far as, uh, human Doug Sauter was, is an amazing man. I don't know if you ever spoke to him. Um, he certainly demanded a lot of respect and he had a reputation of being, you know, hard ass. We, you know, our, our pregame practices went from sweats to full gear and well, pretty intense. And, uh, so it was good. hundred percent. I might, you know, I grew up with my father said, good coaches, bad coach. You're going to learn from everything. Mm-hmm. Doug certainly was a good coach for me. Uh, you know, held us accountable. We didn't have success the second year, but we didn't have success because we didn't have Terry Yake or Terry Menard. And, and, you know, we didn't have, um, we didn't have the same personnel, so he came into a tough, a tough situation. But uh, Doug Sauter, uh, one of the most interesting, uh, intriguing, 
individuals I follow. He and I, he and our group uh, communicate. I see him on Facebook almost daily, mm-hmm. and he's down in Texas, I think, or Oklahoma, and he's either he's got his big mustache and it's gray now, and he's <laughs> out either fishing or he's riding a horseback or he's doing. He's just in a very. He's one of those people that if you ever get a chance to meet him and speak to him, go out of your way to do it because he's a, an amazing storyteller and uh, he's he's a person that I certainly probably don't give enough credit to to shining some light or impacting my life in a positive way. Yeah, I've never spoken to him, but I know some people who've played for him. I've heard stories about him, and generally the one word that comes up is interesting. Like you said, like he's a different cat, you know, good guy and everything, but he's sort of himself, and which is I think is a good thing. He's an individual, but uh, I've never had the pleasure of speaking with him. Maybe that'll change at some point. Listen, I, I'll, t- I'll tell you the greatest gift as a human being that we can have is being uniquely in our individually ourselves like being us and doug sodder whether you like him or dislike him he's 100 percent genuine and he is who he is he does he doesn't try and fake it he doesn't try and pretend he doesn't doug sodder is doug sodder and and i think you know what i think if more people were we're salt of the earth and just said, listen, I'm going to live my best life and I'm going to be the best person I can. We certainly would find ourselves riding horseback or <laughs> catching fish or at some kind of fair or, you know, just, just living life and enjoying life and not getting caught up in all of the minutia of life. So yeah, Doug, Doug's, Doug's a very interesting and amazing uh, person to talk to for sure. So your third year with Brandon, uh, you played six games, you had three points, 26 penalty minutes. Uh, and then you find yourself traded to Spokane. Uh, how did that come about? Well, again, we were log jammed at tw- with our 20-year-olds. We could only have three. So at the time, Jeff Rogers and Cam Brown were, and you know, were were leaders of our team. Um, both of them were wearing letters, and and you know, they were established leaders. I certainly would put myself in the category I was a leader, but like I, I was still trying to find myself and find what it meant to be a leader. Um, and then we had Troy Frederick in the equation. So um, one of us had to go. I knew Cam Brown and and, and Jeff Rogers weren't going to get traded. So that came down to Troy Frederick or myself. So, you know, my thoughts would probably be put around, you know, I would probably piece it together in my mind. The best way would be whoever Kelly McCrimmon, who now is the general manager of the, of the Las Vegas Thunder, could get the best value for or something that fits into the lineup was going to happen. So interesting story. We went out on our West coast trip and uh, you know, I, I actually went into the office and talked to Kelly and I said, well, what's happening? Like I, I just spelled out what I shared with him, what I just shared with you. Mm-hmm. And he's well, yeah, you're right. And so I, went on the trip and we stopped, I believe, well, we, we, we went straight to Kamloops. And at that time, our trainer, equipment guy is a young man named Darren Granger, who also has had tremendous success in the hockey world is currently the LA junior LA Kings, uh, equipment guy. And he's now, he just got named to the, uh, Canadian, uh, uh, team, uh, team, not junior, but pro team. I don't know what they're playing, but very well established. I 
five, tickets were the the room keys were being handed out, and my roommate was Darren Granger. So I knew my I knew my days were over. And then the next day we went, and that day we practiced in cam loops and noticed a gentleman sitting in the stands. And after I came off the ice, after the stands, I was notified at that time that I'd been traded to Spokane and uh, left uh, very quickly, got on a plane, went to Spokane. And, uh, you know, really, I'm going to be honest with you, really started my my hockey career. Uh, very fortunate to get traded to Spokane. Hated leaving all the great people we've talked about. But for me, um, the person I went and played for uh, was very impactful in my career and my life. So. I was uh, I was going to ask you about Spokane because it looked like and again obviously I wasn't able to watch the games on TV I saw some scraps and everything but your numbers forty five points fifty eight games two hundred twenty two penalty minutes I want to ask you about two people with Spokane we'll start with the person that you just uh, alluded to and that's your head coach Brian Maxwell uh, what did Brian Maxwell mean to your career uh, I'll be emotional yeah uh, he I played pro hockey because of him. Um, he, uh, he was, he was a, he was a, a, another interesting guy. Um, great teacher for me. His, his biggest impact on me was, you know, he brought me in. I, I, there's things that I, everything that I do, did in the game and things that I teach in the game and what I do now is still because of him. And so his, his first thing I would say to you, was he brought me into his office after being traded there. And he said, Barry, he goes, my job is to prepare you to be a pro. And he goes, I don't know if it's going to be pro hockey, a pro business person. I don't know what it is. He says, but when you leave here, I want to help you become a pro. And, you know, and, and he did, you know, he, he prepared me to, to be a leader and to be a pro. And uh, I owe a lot to him. And the second part he 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 helped me create an identity or figured out who I was because he pulled me into the office. He said, Barry, he goes, like, you're a good player and you put up good, you know, your numbers are good. And he said, but are you, you know, again, the legends of the game now that were people that we were witness to and and strive to play with or against was, you know, guys like Paul Coffey and Ray Bork and all these amazing offensive-minded defensemen. He's like, you're no Paul Coffey and you're no Ray Bork. And even if you were good, do you want to be, re- you know, re- relied on to be that guy? Like, you're probably not that person. And he said, like, he, you know, he says, Barry, he goes, like, you're big, you're strong. He goes, here's the reality of it. Everybody's looking for a big, strong SOB to play against that's, that's hard to compete against, that's mean, that's nasty, that's a first-pass guy. He goes, you certainly could fill that role but you got to decide what, you know, what you want to do. And so completing my year of the Western Hockey League, then listening to what he had to say, then reflecting on my teammates who were having success, uh, and then basically almost leaving the game at that time because I was kind of lost and didn't know where to go, went to the University of Manitoba for, for half a season and then turned pro after competing for with, with the Bisons for half a season. I finally had figured out, hey, here's a role I can play and here's how I can, you know, play pro hockey and make some money, you know, play hockey and make some money doing it. So um, Brian Maxwell is, you know, I've told him a couple times and um, 
you know, it, I, I think that there's always, you know, they always say there's two or three people in your life that make a major impact. And it wasn't a long, long period of time, but certainly a major, major impact. And there's a, you want to talk about a tough ombre right there. He was, uh, he was one of the meanest people. He was yeah. like just a mean, his voice was, you know, he just, everything he did was scary just because he was just intense and scary and, and, uh, I learned a lot and taught me how to fight a little bit. And, uh, he had such, he, he had huge hands and the guy that was just the coach at the time. another guy that was there, his name was Gary Braun. Uh, he had big hands too. So we had, we had a pretty big coaching staff in Spokane. It was good. It was awesome. But yeah, I, 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 I owe probably, I owe probably my career to Brian Maxwell. Wow. That's awesome. That was an amazing answer. That, that's great. You could feel it. You could kind of feel it when you talk about him, how much he means to you. So that was, that was incredible. Uh, thank you for sharing that. That was uh, terrific. Um, the other person I want to ask you about now, you finished second on the team, even though you, you played most of the season there, you were second on the team at penalty minutes with 222. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming you remember who led the team at penalty minutes. And that was Kerry Toporowski. Uh, one of the real characters, uh, in minor league hockey lore, uh, what was it, and someone you'd go on to play against uh, plenty of times in the IHL? What was it like playing with Kerry Toporowski? Yeah, so when I got traded to Spokane, Kerry and I were we we were billeted together, and then that was a very short period because then I got I got moved to a, an older house or a family that needed an older player that had a car, so I got I left there. So he and I were roommates for a short period of time. Uh, you know what? He reminds me a lot of um, Kevin Cheveldayoff in regards to he entered the league at a young age. You know, he fought everybody. You know, he he went up against all the heavyweights. You know, I, I think that's something from from my perspective. I didn't fight all the heavyweights during my Western Hockey League days. You know, the the Tony Twist and the you know the Bomb Gardeners. You know, all the, I, that just that was I, Kevin Cheveldayoff did that. Jeff Rogers did that. Cam Brown did that. And I was kind of like a light middle light behind everybody. So, uh, you know, I picked up some scraps here or there, but the, they did all the heavy lifting. So, uh, Kerry Toporowski was very, very similar, in my opinion, to Kevin Cheveldayoff. He fought Link Gates. He fought everybody. And, you know, again, another player that got uh, – was a high draft pick. I think he went second or third over third round to San Jose. Um, you know, and had a nice hockey career in – in in you know play, had a nice career i mean put together years of years of playing and uh, you know did it the hard way too you know all yeah. my friends all my friends did it the hard way <laughs> so I didn't, hang, I didn't hang out with the finesse guys i hung out with all the all the all the all the grinders well, the grinders are the ones that are fun to hang out with. You don't want to hang out with the finesse guys. First of all, they probably take forever to get their hair done. You're going to be waiting forever for them down at the hotel or at the house. They got to look pretty and everything. You got to, the grinders are the, that's the way to go. Yeah. Well, you know what? I think the grinders are the guy, the ones that are probably, you know, like you look back at, I look at back at all the guys. I even think about myself, like we're the grinders are the ones that all, you know, we had to do the extra work because we're, you know, we had, cuts and scrapes and everything so we had to like do our hair properly and you know, we, tried, we tried to kind of hide it you know so that's kind of probably reverse of what you just shared it was uh yeah that's funny well you're doing it for the aesthetics of covering up maybe bumps bruises or cuts they're just doing it because they want to be pretty yeah there you go yeah, <laughs> yeah. You're probably right so you're down in you're down in spokane uh new team new sets of rivals 
one of the biggest rivals for Spokane, if not the biggest, would be uh, the Seattle Thunderbirds. That year you had five fights against Seattle, uh, including some noted guys like Turner Stevenson and uh, Kevin Malgunas. Now, again, unfortunately, there's no video for these, but what was it like uh, you know, playing against the Thunderbirds and playing against guys like Turner Stevenson and Malgunas? Right. Well, you look at, so getting, going to Spokane and playing, getting into some different rivalries, obviously the, the West coast trip was, was always a big, and we enjoyed doing it when I played in Brandon, but to be able to go play, you know, again, uh, Glenn Goodall, who's from, from Manitoba went to Seattle as like a 14 year old. And, you know, so, and they had their own team boss and, you know, they had all these things So going into Seattle uh, was a they, was an intimidating, uh, awesome, amazing atmosphere. Uh, it, it's so so awesome, like just great competition, great battles. Uh, that conference was great. When you look at Seattle, you look at Seattle, you look at um, Kamloops. Obviously, has been was a dominant force back in those days. So just playing in that environment, uh, I, I think the rivalries were different, but uh, but enjoyable. Like just. But going into Seattle is always fun. It was just a the atmosphere was good. It was very college like. You know, they played the Gary Glitter song. Yeah. It, was good. it was awesome. It was just you know they had the old chicken wire up on the back back of the end boards, no glass. It's, you know, in my first year, I believe, and it was just awesome. It was, my be, our best, my best uh, Seattle, the most interesting Seattle uh, experience was we we went to play in in the building where the supersonics were, were playing out of And there was like a pack, like they sold it out and we drove over from Spokane and we went through the pass. We're trying to get through the first pass. that we would usually go through and it was melting and the pass closed. So then we raced down along the mountain line to get there. And then that pass got closed. And so full house sit in there waiting for us. They decided to, to rent three, little Cessna planes and three or four Cessna planes planes and fly us over the mountains. And we landed, we got there late. I remember landing in Seattle. And when I tell you that our, the plane was when we, we were 10 feet from 10, 15, 20 feet from the ground and the plane was sideways. And just as we, before we turned touchdown, he straightened the nose out and we landed safely and went to the rink and we played. And I think we lost that game, but but it was like an amazing, just an amazing experience. You just talk about, you, like, you know, it was just, it was bizarre. It was just, you know, thinking about being a young kid growing up in Winnipeg and then playing in front of 15, 16,000 fans in, 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 in Seattle was amazing. It was really good. Uh, two of the guys you fought that year are two very well-known uh, minor league enforcers. Uh, one was John Baduke with Victoria, and one was Greg Spenrath, who was with Tri-City. Um, again, unfortunately, no video. Uh, anything memorable about uh, those scraps with those two guys? No, I, I not, yeah, I remember fighting, I, I remember fighting, I remember fighting both of them, but, mm-hmm. but Spenrath was a big guy. Mm-hmm. Tri-Cities was, again, new into the program. Obviously, he was a physical presence. You know, I don't remember the fight specifically, mm-hmm. but just know competing and, and fighting and, and battling against against him. He was just a big man. And, and and uh, yeah, so, like, yeah, when I look back to my junior hockey career, mm-hmm. the, those that window was, like, the fighting component was, I hadn't really established myself mm-hmm. in that role, so it wasn't something that I didn't study it. I didn't study the players. I didn't, mm-hmm. you know. But at at as a, you know, in my again in my 
overage year and playing for Brian and him kind of teaching me like you're a leader and you can dictate, you know, you can help determine outcomes, not only by your skill set and your ability, but by, you know, by having a physical presence and, and, um, you know, really kind of bring in some people in behind you and say, Hey, it's safe to, you can, you, it's safe. You know, tonight's going to be a safe night. Like Travis green, like, it's okay. I'm going to take care of you tonight. Or, you know, Ray Whitney, like I'll we'll take care of you or Pat Falloon or, mm-hmm. you know, or, or we had some pushback or we needed some presence. Like, you know, I, the one thing that there was, a, there's always a time and place. And I think my Western hockey league career ending in Spokane was good for me because, you know, it, it gave me an opportunity to get out from underneath the shadows of a Cam Brown and a Jeff Rogers and a Kevin Chevel day off and gave me an opportunity to be a leader with a really young group of players that went on the following year to win a Memorial cup. And yep. so while well, I wasn't on that team, I, you know, I felt I actually went the following year uh, when they were in the finals against Lethbridge in the West Rock League finals, I actually went to Spokane and I watched them in game one and game two. And, you know, I really felt part of, felt part of it just yeah. from a standpoint of, you know, what Brian had taught me uh, and, and, and what he you know, what he shared with me and then, you know, being able to witness it was, was awesome. And seeing those, seeing all those kids do so well and, and win a Memorial cup. And it was awesome. It was special. You know, Spokane was a special time and place also. Um, but it was a huge, huge growth year. Cause you know, going back to, to playing in Brandon, it was awesome because my parents were there, but that was the first time at 20, I literally left home, you know, even though I was in Brandon, I never really left home because, you know, i shoot home you know quite often and see my friends and hang out but once i got to spokane i was like okay now you're you're on your own buddy and so just awesome awesome and after spokane you took a route similar to uh, a former guest brent severin when he was done in the western league he went to university and you find yourself at the university of manitoba uh sort of an unorthodox journey to pro hockey uh what led to your decision to go to university well, I'll be honest with you. So if you go back to if you go back to the end of my overage year, the Spokane Chiefs uh, was owned by a I don't even I can't even remember who it was they was who owned the Chiefs, but uh, that off season the Brett family, George Brett and the Bretts ended up going in and buying um, the team. And at that time, uh, when they went in and took a look at the team, they did an evaluation of the, the program and the staff and everything. And, and at that time, my understanding was that Brian was Maxwell was like, Hey, you need to lay low. Like we're trying to sort through it. So Brian wasn't, and, 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 but, you know, again, every experience is interesting. So, uh, as a 20 year old, I made some mistakes while I was there and, uh, I'm not, I don't, I don't want to share them, but sure, made sure. some bad, I made a bad decision there. I know nothing bad or illegal or just made a bad decision and didn't share mm-hmm. uh, something with my coach. And my coach was kind of like, huh, you disappointed me. And, I, and so, and I understand. So at the end of my 20 year old year, Brian couldn't do or didn't do a lot. Mm-hmm. I uh, wasn't able to help a lot. So I found myself without a contract or without a place to go. And, I went home and uh, two things happened. My dad was sick. My dad had Crohn's disease and colitis and he became very sick. We almost lost him. And between that and not having a place to go, I was kind of lost. And my brother who lived, who was drafted by Toronto, 
had joined the Winnipeg Police Department. So I was like, well, I guess maybe my path is no longer hockey and I need to go get a job. So I applied for the fire at Winnipeg Fire Department and I missed getting on the fire department by three people. Ugh. So I'm sit I'm sitting there trying to figure out what to do. Another young man that at the time was coaching the uh, Manitoba Moose was a guy by the name of Don DePoe, who I had connected with, and we did a uh, All Star team. Uh, it was a year in nineteen I think nineteen eighty four was uh, Expo in Vancouver. We went out and did a, a tournament team, and Don ended up coaching at the University of Manitoba. He says, Barry, you're too good to quit. Why don't you come play for the University of Manitoba? I wasn't a great student. He said, listen, you turn 21, you become a mature student at, at this time, at Christmas time. Come, why don't you come play for me? And I said, okay, sure. So I went and played in the, in, at the University of Manitoba. Uh, didn't really like it from the standpoint, not because I was a tough guy in the West Hockey by any means, because I wasn't, but some of the kid, people that we played against in the Western Hockey League were that were you didn't ever noticed all of a sudden were like the toughest guys in college <laughs> hockey. And I was like, yeah, I, this is not my gig. So mm-hmm. that coupled with Terry Ruskowski and my good friend who I mentioned earlier, Jason Taylor, um, with, you know, Jason Taylor's father, Ted Taylor, played with Terry Ruskowski in Houston. So the Columbus Chill was born and Terry Ruskowski Wanted Jason Taylor to come play for him. Jason recruited me and off to Columbus, Ohio in the beginning of my hockey career in the United States of America. And 30-plus years later, it's, uh, you know, the U.S. has become my home. Well, obviously, that was uh, that was the next question was how do you ended up signing with Columbus, and then you answered that. Um, I got to ask you about some of your teammates there because this was – I mean, people know even when uh, Minnesota North Stars moved to Dallas – the first two players they put on billboards were Basil McRae and Shane Churla. So, you know, fighting is very popular in hockey, especially in the East Coast League at the time. And who knows how good an expansion team's going to be. So they loaded, loaded, uh, Roscoe loaded this team up with some pretty tough players. And to start with yourself with 362 penalty minutes, uh, Mark Cipriano, Joey Middlestat, Phil Crow. Rob Sangster, who only played 15 games, but I noted that he had 158 penalty minutes. Your teammate, Jason Taylor, Brad Trevling, uh, Treliving, Cam Brown, who we mentioned already, and a, a little guy who I am a huge fan of and I love him called Smurf, Jason Christie. So tell me about playing with this group of guys. Uh, so, so it's interesting. I Jason Taylor and I leave Winnipeg together. And we make our trek to Columbus and our trek takes us to Minnesota. We went and visited a friend and uh, the blue, the blue Jays were playing actually against Minnesota in the pennant. So we ended up getting tickets and going to see that. And we watched that game. Then we got, we got into our, you, we got in this bright, bright U-Haul or budget vehicle. It was like neon. It was shining. And we were on our way to Columbus. And at the time, Stu Grimson was playing for the Blackhawks. And I got another guy by the name of John Tonelli, who played with Jason's dad in Houston. Uh, we're playing for the Blackhawks. So we're like, okay, well, we're going to stop in Chicago and we're going to see Grimmer. And they had an exhibition game. So we're like, hey, we're going to drive to, we're going to go see the game. Then we're going to stay the night and we're going to leave in the morning. So we have this bright neon, <laughs> this bright neon rider truck. We we have, we don't have a lot. We have a, a futon in the back and like four or five boxes. They gave us the wrong vehicle, but it, that's comical in itself. We, Grimmer goes, make sure you go to the 
west side of the building and ask for so and so and and he'll park it in there and then if you you know when you park in there and well someone's going to come up and say hey you want me to watch your truck and then you say yes and you give them 20 dollars because if not your truck may not be there when you come out so you're like you had to pay someone to kind of watch it, even though it was inside the skate. So we drive in to Chicago, which is not in a great area, and yep. and we drive to the West Side Gate, and we ask for – I forget the guy's name, and, of course, that guy's not there, right? <laughs> so we're like, well, we're friends with Grimmer, you know, all these different things. So anyway, we find our parking spot, we do that. And the purpose of my sharing the story was on our drive up, Jason and I were like, well, we had new franchise. We, you know, we're trying to come up with these slogans and – thoughts and hey you know and it was funny it was we, we were excited about it we were young two young kids going to the states and playing pro hockey it was great and when we got there the ownership of the chill was uh also owned the indianapolis um pacers you know horn chin and so they had an amazing marketing point marketing team and so their the best slogan they had was in life you get five in life, you get five years for fighting. In hockey, you get five minutes. Oh, I love it. <laughs> so, so, you, so, you, so you knew that it was going to be a team, a very physical team in the resemblance of the guy who led it, which was Terry Roskowski. And, you know, obviously Jason Christie uh, was a player that played for Roscoe in Saskatoon and knew he was a, you know, a pretty uh, – not a high profile kid, but that's like a person that drew attention and he was, you know, that, that league was a lot about theatrics and creating an energy in the town and creating, you know, an atmosphere. And so Smurf certainly fit into that category and, you know, put up some good numbers and was, you know, was a big part of part of why Columbus had success. And, you know, I, you know, you look at Columbus, the, the Blue Jackets there now, certainly we, we as a minor, uh, we as a group of players going in there had a, not saying we brought them there, but certainly had a positive impact on the area, and, and uh, Columbus was, you know, a special place for sure. How how were the fans? I mean, it was a it was a new team, and obviously, you guys delivered. I mean, in terms of the toughness, because you know, not everyone can appreciate a, a highlight reel goal or an amazing save, but the average human being can appreciate two guys going at it. And it seemed like a third of your team was more than capable of doing that. Did the fans just take two guys right away? It was it was bedlam. Yeah. So so I don't know what the record was, but at the time we had set a professional. I don't know if it was sports or hockey record where we had consecutive sellouts. And the building wasn't a huge building. We played in the old state fairgrounds. It may have hold four or five thousand. I don't know what the numbers were, but standing room only. Um, again, it, like if Seattle was amazing. This if Seattle was like a 10, this was a 20. It was just electric, electric. It was young people. You could buy alcohol in the building. The Donato's pizza was throwing freaking pizzas in the stand, like pizza boxes in the stands. It was just bedlam. You know, you, you mentioned we had three guys over 300 minutes of penalties. We had six over 200 minutes of penalties. And then the rest of the team, probably, o'clock. you know, probably the rest of the group had, it was insane. We were we were in, we were insane. It was insane. It was you fun. Had, you had. We, we, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. You know, what's funny is that we we didn't win a ton of games, but teams didn't teams didn't want to come and play there. And downtown Columbus at the time had an old the old Columbus Penitentiary there was there, and we're like, we need to they need to put a rank inside the penitentiary. <laughs> 
and we need to play in the penitentiary. Like, if you talk about intimidating coming into Columbus, where are you guys playing? Like, we're playing at the penitentiary. Like, that would have been like that. That was per. I mean, not like listen. That whole group of people, I'm the most amazing people. Like all good people. Uh, just to just to have that thought would have been amazing. It was just you know it's funny. It was fun. It's funny to think back, look back and think about it. Like hey, you're gonna come play in the penitentiary. Like we're like a bunch of <laughs> criminals. Just like just do whatever it takes. Right? It was great. You had ten players on that team with 138 penalty minutes or more, and that doesn't even count Cam Brown because he only had 64 minutes. But that was in only ten games. So. I mean that that is and it it looks like as I look at the hockey DB it's you're just a bunch of guys anywhere from age twenty to twenty four must have just been a lot of fun. Oh, it was crazy. I'll tell you the best fight of the the best the the best fight ever of that that I may have been witness to live was our first first day of training or like first early in our training camp which we held in Indianapolis and Phil Crow who you mentioned yeah. squared off with a guy who. Uh, I think Al played for the uh, uh, Ohio State Buckeyes as a football player, and I, I I don't know for sure, but anyways, he came and played, tried out for us, and played some games with us. And Phil Crow and Al Novakowski, who are both big boys, literally stood there toe to toe, and landed every punch like for at least a minute, Jeez. and then it was over, and then they got undressed. Then they got into the car, drove to the hospital together, and got all of their faces and everything put back together. And it was insanely gross and amazing all at the same time. It was it was amazing. Uh, a few players I want to ask you about that uh, you hooked up with that year. And again, uh, I don't have your complete fight card. You had uh, well over 300 minutes, but uh, unfortunately, I only have a few players. Uh, one guy that you, you fought that year was someone who you had fought a few times, I believe, in the Western League. And he was with Louisville at the time. And that's Trevor Buchanan. You remember uh, uh, locking horns with him? You know what? I, I don't remember fighting him. Mm-hmm. Trevor Buchanan, yeah, I don't remember fighting him. And again, Louisville and I and Louisville was a team that I was considering go, going to. Um, it's a general. I think the the guy that was co- coached it was a brother of someone my brother played with in West Hollywood, so I almost ended up going there. Uh, Trevor Buchanan, I can't put that together. I'm sorry. That's okay. Yep. Um, a couple other guys, uh, Howie Rosenblatt. You remember fighting the legend? Uh, vaguely remember mm-hmm. it, obviously. Um, when you enter the when enter the the East Coast Hockey League, yeah. you know different people have different reputations. So mm-hmm. you know people that were well established or that were known to be fighters, you know, were there. So mm-hmm. again, I, you got to remember, I'm I'm new into figuring out my identity. I yep. I, I, I kind of mandated myself, not mandated. I kind of said, listen, here's you know, my dad was like, quit hockey, go get a job, and. You know, the, and I was like, "No, nah, you're not. You're not taking my dream." I, I, you know, as a as a young man, finally, I said, "No, nah, uh, this is what I want to do. I'm going to give myself three years, and I'm going to do whatever it takes." And my goal was my goal was to get to the next level. So, uh, I didn't go out looking for fights. The lot enough came to me on my own. Yeah. And so, obviously, he's someone that we you know connected with, and and, and on a couple occasions, and you know, cer- certainly. Um, you know, when you look at everyone that you fight, they're you know they're different sizes and the different you know different strengths. But um, 
you know, you, as a warrior, as a person that you compete with, those are the people you respect the most at the end. So certainly, certainly he's one of them. So while you did have uh, 362 penalty minutes, you did score four goals that year. Do you remember your first professional goal? Absolutely not. <laughs> okay. No, nope, don't remember any of it. You know, I, again, you know, I, again, I'm going to go back to this. And I think, you know, today as I sit, um, you know, I run a youth youth hockey program in New Jersey and, and been involved in junior hockey and pro hockey and, and worked with the LA Junior Kings and, you know, been in the game. And one of the things I continue to try and teach the kids, it's like, you know, stats never really mattered to me. Right. Um, penalty minutes didn't really matter to me, you know, um, because it was for me, it was just about competing and trying to win and trying to have success. And, and so, you know, you go back to my Winnipeg Saints days and you go like, you know, unfortunately, ten, like, you know, not like my dad passed away probably eight, nine, ten years ago. And my mom sold the house I grew up in. And, you know, she had flyer. She had books of clippings and things that I did and didn't do and had all the stats from my youth, youth years and clippings from Brandon and whatever. And, you know, I, I look back and I go like, oh, my God, I didn't know that in my first year or second year with the Saints, like I, I had I let our D in points. Like I had no clue. Like I just didn't connect to stats because that's not why I played. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't. It was it was the it was the competition. And 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 unfortunately, I think most of the kids today with technology and 24 hour sports news and NHL highlights. All they see is the glory. You know, they, they see the end result. They don't see the the guy grinding in the corner, the guy competing down low, or, you know, they don't see all the things that make you a player and they don't, and they don't see what makes a team successful. And I, unfortunately it's hard to explain that to not only players, but even more so now than parents, yeah. you know, like parents just think, Hey, if I throw a lot of money at it, my kid's going to be great or he's going to make it. And unfortunately they have, they haven't learned how to compete. They haven't learned to love to compete. Mm-hmm. They haven't, they're not playing for the right reasons. Cause right. if all the people that we've talked about, whether it's the, you know, Jeff Rogers or the Cam Brown or Kevin Chevel day off, or, you know, you people that I fought wrote, you know, all these different people we're talking about. We didn't play for the money. Mm-hmm. We didn't, we just played because it was, it's what we love to do. It was, it was the camaraderie. It was the friendship. It was the dress room stuff. It was going out after it was like buckling. It was like doing your pulling your tie down on and knowing that today you have, you had to go to war. I mean, that was our war, you know, it was awesome. And, it's funny you brought it up. I mean, it, it goes back to, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old in the backyard trying to run past my brother or my, my, our neighbor. Like it's, those are things that we don't, our kids aren't getting today, unfortunately. Yeah. That's everywhere. You know, we always talk about, you know, on Long Island where I live when, when I first moved here, when I was 14, you couldn't find a baseball field once the weather got warm where there wasn't kids out there playing. And then once the weather got a little cooler, even, you know, street hockey and stuff or uh, in the parks, the basketball nets. Uh, it's a chore enough to see kids out there now. But uh, like you say, it is a battle because all they see is ESPN. They see the highlights. They see the the selfish celebrations and stuff. And so for someone like yourself that's coaching, it does seem like an uphill battle. 
Yeah, it's yeah, it's it's a challenge. Yeah. I mean, the unfortunate part here's the reality of it is I'll give you a great example. I'm coaching a a hybrid team in New Jersey right now that's between a AAA and a Double A team. We're trying to you know get them to play. We're playing against Triple A or trying to play against good Triple A teams, and we we went we we're seven and two, and we kind we come back from uh. Uh, Ch- the Chowder Cup, where we win some games and we advance in playoffs, and we win our first game, and we come back and there's parents that are upset that I didn't play their kids in the right situation, or why are you playing these kids ahead? And I'm like, we're seven and two. I can't imagine what it's going to be like when we're two and seven. Like, yeah. you know. And so I, again, it's like you have to promise everybody X, Y, and Z. And I don't coach that way, mm-hmm. and I'm not going to start now. So right. either either kind of get on board, or you like. You're going to find yourself a new place to play, unfortunately. No, I listen, I agree 100%. I give you all the credit in the world because, uh, you know, I see it myself uh, with some parents. You see it on social media because nobody's afraid to voice their opinions now. And uh, it, it's uh, uh, it's epidemic, I guess, with some of the parents. But uh the year that you played in Columbus, that first year, you did find yourself uh, playing a few games with the Capital District Islanders. So how did that come about? Wow, that's a there's a there's a lot in that story. Okay. Um, so, the long and the short of it is, we didn't win a lot of games in Columbus, so we found ourselves not making the playoffs. Um, and so, timing was great, uh, obviously for myself. Unfortunately, we didn't have success, but for me to kind of start the path of trying to climb the ladder to get to the American Hockey League or the IHL, and then you know, ultimately trying to get to the National Hockey League. Not making the playoffs turned out to be a good thing. You know, personally, I had a good year in Columbus and did enough to create some, I guess, stir or uh, interest in myself. Coupled with Capital District Islanders, which at the time was playing in Capital Di- District, um, and Glens Falls, New York, which was the minor league team of of the Detroit Red Wings at the time, and um, the Adirondack had a really, really good team, which went, ended up going on to win the Calder Cup that year. And they had, you know, a really good team. But they also had a really tough team. They had Jim Cummings there. They had uh, Mark Potvin and Dennis Fial, and you know, they had they had a they had a stable of guys that were not there were no strangers to the fighting element. Um, and in this window prior to getting called up. Adirondack played Capital District and had a line brawl or had some, you know, major brawl that didn't end favorably for the Islanders farm team. And Graham Townsend had a, you know, had a severe injury out of it. So they were like, okay, we, we got to have some pushback. So they called myself up and they called Frankie Bialoa up also, uh, who's another guy that played, you know, pro and played in the National Hockey League and, and different stuff. And so I, that's how that started. But what's interesting about it is, is they got, they lost the game, they lost the fights, and Frankie and I roll into town, Butch Coring's the head coach, and for some strange reason, it, we find ourselves in a in a bag skate for an hour and change, and I'll be honest with you, as you move up in ranks, though, you know, you you have skill levels and, and, and the ability to play at those levels, you may not be in the same condition, you may not be as strong as those players are, so you get called up, 
and you didn't make the playoffs, so you've had some extracurricular activity, and you're probably not mentally in the in in the right place to get ready to be skated. And we get skated for the first hour, and just keeping up was difficult. And so, at the end of the practice, I was fortunate enough and stayed. And I think they sent Frankie home that 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 afternoon. And we're like, yeah, you you can't play. <laughs> Which left me in in a precarious situation because the next day we traveled to Glens Falls, New York, which. You know, I ended up playing for the Red Wings farm team in, in Glens Falls, which was a great experience in time. But if you've never been in that, the old Glen, the Glens, far, far, Glens Falls building, uh, awesome minor hockey league building, uh, really, you know, really tight bowl with fans right on top of you. You know, it wasn't old, it was an older building, dress rooms kind of crowded and, and cramped, and. You know, I basically go out for a warm-up, and I've got, you know, three pit bulls sitting on the other side of the red line going, hey, you want it? It's here. You want it? It's here. Like, so I didn't I didn't have to go too far to look for a fight. Not that I was looking for a fight. I was just like, hey, I'm in American hockey. This is, you know, and uh, so I ended up early, early in the game. You know, like I said, Jim Cummings is like, hey, you're looking for it. Let's go. And so. Uh, my first American Hockey League fight was against Jim Cummings, and uh, obviously he went on to have a, a, a nice career in the National Hockey League and and, and did well. And it's kind of how I started my American Hockey League career, going into the going into the Lions Den. Was the second game also against Adirondack? No, we played. The second game was against I want to say Rochester in in Capital District, and you know it's funny that year I forget what year it is, but that was the year of the lockout or what the looming lockout was just ever so present so i get called up and and in the second game i think i get a goal and assist and i think i'm second star which then then the next day i go to the rink and i find myself being sent down or released from the team i'm like i can't i can't do anything more i can't first game i fight second game a goal assist second star i think i've arrived and all of a sudden well we don't have a spot for you see you later like thanks for coming up we you know you, you you served your time or you you made your presence known, but for me it was great because it, 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 you know, I, I ended up getting to the American Hockey League and said, listen, I can hang with the bigger boys and I can skate with the big, like I could play at that level, and it was just a great, um, you know, it was like a benchmark thing, validated yeah. myself, and so I can remember going back, uh, you know, going back to Winnipeg and it started the process of training and it just kind of re really helped me focus in on saying, listen, you're close to making the next step, like let's let's get it done. And, and, uh, you know, that led me to a training camp with Milwaukee admirals and Kurt, my first introduction to Kurt Frazier, which he comes around later in my career, obviously, but it's my kind of my first introduction to, to Kurt Frazier and, and the Milwaukee admirals in the IHL. Uh, how did that go with, uh, with the Milwaukee? Cause it's funny you say that I was actually going to ask you if couple with the uh, season you had in Columbus and then the two game stint with capital district, if that led to uh, a training camp invite with anyone from the NHL or, or the uh, upper minors. And now you're saying Milwaukee, how was that? How did that go? Well, so I went to Milwaukee. So we, so, my, so the Columbus chill was an affiliate of Milwaukee. So, I found my again the hockey world so small. I found myself in Milwaukee with guys like Jason Taylor and uh, George Manilock, um, Lou Francis, Lou Francis Getty mm-hmm. played for the Toronto Maple Leafs. Like so, I ended up going to Milwaukee, and actually, uh, there was zero chance of me making the team. Mm-hmm. Um, 
they had 12 guys under contract, defensemen under contract. Oh, and wow. so I went there w- without contract. Um, the good news is Kurt Fraser liked my style. Uh, had some players under contract that he didn't. They weren't his style. But Kurt certainly, you know, he came down to Columbus and watched us two or three times. And he and I connected uh, in Milwaukee, like my style. Came down and watched. He and I stayed in close contact. He's like, you know, we're going to bring you up. We're going to call you up. And uh yeah, they didn't end up. They they it actually never happened because my second year in Columbus, I ended up having wrist surgery. Um, I, the tendon that goes over your ulna bone, which is the little bone that sticks out on your on your on your wrist, it's supposed to run in a groove. Mine would snap over. It was very very sensitive, and inflammation had had uh, grown, and I couldn't play. I couldn't pass or shoot or anything. So I had to have wrist surgery. So. They end up calling other people up, but I didn't make that team. Uh, I didn't get the call up, but I did get the call up to Hamilton. Then Hamilton at the end of the year, which is another amazing experience in time and another interesting character, Jack McElhardy. So, well, before we get to Jack and Hamilton, I got to ask you about uh, Columbus. So there, you had some of the same cast of characters from the year before, but this second year, uh, a gentleman by the name of Sasha Lakovic was also on the team. Uh, another character along the lines of, say, Kerry Toporowski. What was it like playing with Sasha? Yeah, you know what? I since since retiring from the game um, and being around people that have played the National Hockey League. Um, Derek Armstrong who played National Hockey League for a few year, a bunch of years, whatever. He's like, if you're gonna play in National Hockey League, you gotta be a little crazy. Like, there's gotta be, a, you know, like you, you gotta be crazy. Like, there's something missing in you that you're gonna go to the weight room and work out as hard as you do, or you're gonna ride the bike, or you're gonna run the mountain, or you're like, you got there's something missing in us because you, you go to extreme age, measures to make it. So when Sasha showed up, uh, and you have to have some swagger, right? And so. Sasha had a whole lot of swagger and he had, you know, he came in with this big, you know, pit bull kind of persona and no one's going to tell me what to do. And, you know, and so, you know, he, you know, goes back to what I said about my Western Hockey League career. It was like, I didn't have a true identity. He had an identity. He knew who he was. He knew what his role was. He knew what he was going to do. And, he did what he wanted to do. He worked, he competed on a team that was perfect for him, that craziness was allowed and fighting and all that was encouraged. And, um, you know, he did that well and he climbed the ranks. And so, you know, he was, he was a different character and a different mold, did things his own way. But um, if you're going to make it, sometimes you got to, most of the times you got to be different, right? Yeah. Nobody, Everybody wants different, you know, like, what do you do different? Like we got, I have, we have 10 right wingers. Like what, what's different about you? And, you know, you got to do all the same things, but then you got to do something, something else. And he certainly had that. It wasn't swagger. It was just a little bit of like, wow. It's a little bit of a. You know, I I always use like the term like the give a shit meter. Like he's yeah. just like I don't really give a shit what you think about me. Like I really don't give a shit. You don't like what I wear. Like, like I really don't care that you think when I show up in my pajamas for practice or for games. Like, I just don't really give a shit. And you know what? From coming back from and you, and you look at the pedigree of people that I've worked with and and trained with or not trained with but played with that are that are at the national. Like you look at Brad Tree Living or Kevin Chevelday off or Craig Heinzinger or 
you know, you look at Bob Woods who's coaching in the National Ike League, and you know, you just look at all these people that I played with, and we were all clean cut, close shaving, respectful people. I'm not being critical of Sasha, just we just didn't have that like I don't give a shit attitude. Like mm-hmm. I'm here, do what I want, end of story. Yeah, you know, and that's how he was. He carried himself that way, and you know, he lived his dream. You know, unfortunately, you know, you know, he lived his dream. Mm-hmm. Not, not unfortunately, he lived his dream, you know. Uh, you talked about the injury you had. You had this injury, and you still managed to put up 301 penalty minutes in 37 games. I mean, in those 37 games, we, I, I mean, I didn't know. I assumed you may have been injured because you played the 37 with Columbus and 13 with Hamilton. But for a guy who had a, a – it sounds like a pretty serious injury, very painful injury. You played 50 games that year combined, and you had 351 penalty minutes. I mean – I don't even know the question I want to ask is how do you put up those numbers battling through an injury like that? Well, you know, it's what's interesting about it was, you know, again, in the old days, it's like, and I even say it now, like it was a long, it's a long way from the heart, right? Like I wasn't, I'm not dead. Like it's a long way from the heart. So like when you, when you, when you lace the skates up, the other opposition does it, they're not going like, ah, he's got a sore wrist or, He's got a broken hand or, you know, his, his, his nose was on the other side of his face last night. Like nobody asked that question, right? Like, Hey, are you okay? Can you go? Or can you not go? Like, so by my second year, so having the success I had going to, to, uh, capital district, then coming, you know, coming off of a positive camp, you know, and again, you know, it's interesting in my life, I've had, you have pivotal moments in your life and, when I youth hockey, I made a you know a small statement of, you know about what I was going to do, and then when I at the end of my tryout in Milwaukee, I went back to the building, grabbed my stuff, and spent some time in the building, and I just said like, I'm I'm gonna play I'm gonna play here like this is the level I'm ready to play at. So I was highly motivated to get back to that level, and then I I I figured out my identity right. So now I had to now I had to play and I had to do my job. And so that became my job and that became part of who I was. And that was my DNA. And for the first time I didn't have to, are you a goal scorer? You're not a goal scorer. You're a power defenseman. Are you like, what are you? I was like, I was a, as, as Brian Maxwell say, I was a a tough son of a bitch. that was hard to play with play against that people didn't want to play against. And that, so I found the keys to my success. I kind of figured out, like, if you want to play hockey and make a little bit more money and continue pursuing your dream, this is what you have to do. And at, in, in your second year, all of a sudden now I became the Howies or the, you know, the, you know, who, you know, the other players that have been established in the East coast league. And I was the benchmark. So now people starting, I didn't have to look hard. I didn't have to look a lot of places. So those things came to me naturally. And, you know, you just do, you do what you, you're doing and you're trying to help your team win and be successful. And so certainly that was part of what I did. So. The um the call up to Hamilton was that a similar situation to the season before where you guys were out of the playoffs or was that sort of in season where uh, maybe they needed some muscle? Um, the Hamilton scenario exactly the same. We didn't make the playoffs, but you remember. So you know, I'm coming off an injury. Um, you know what's interesting about it is I can't. I don't really know. I can't explain to you why Hamilton called me up. So Jason Christie and myself went up at that time. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I guess, I guess from my, 
you know, I guess I, if I was to go back and say like, why did they call me up? I, you know, obviously they were probably interested in myself and, and they're like, Hey, here's a guy that's put up some good numbers and he's com- competitive and he wants to battle and he wants to fight and wants to do all these things. And I certainly fit into Jack McElharvey's coaching philosophies and, you know, Jack, he liked the style that I played. You know, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say that Hamilton was, we had a lot of, you know, the only guy that comes to my mind that was there at the time was Sean Antosky, mm-hmm. uh, huge human being. Um, you know, I, I can't really tell you who else would have been there that was, you know, Rick, no, nah, Rick Lestard wasn't there. Um, that would have been it, because as far as their roster goes, the only two guys besides yourself and Smurf, and I think Cipriano played a little bit up there, was Sean and Rick Lassard. But you're saying Lassard, maybe that's why you were there. Uh, if Lassard wasn't there, then you did a physical defenseman. Right. Well, I don't think Lassard was there at the time. So, mm-hmm. so the so I think the combination of hey, they were interested in me, and they needed more of a presence back there. So I ended up playing. You know, again, it was an awesome experience. Went in. We went first trip was uh, we went out to St. John's and and Newfoundland and and uh, you know had some. I've, I fought a guy by the name of uh, Kevin McClellan. Again, yeah. he was playing for Toronto's minor league team and. Um, you know, again, I watched him win Stanley cups and I'm like, <laughs> I'm fighting them. And then, and then, and then, you know, we get kicked out of the game and he's like, I sorry, drags. He goes out, you know, I, I can't even remember. He's like, it was so bizarre. He's like, Hey, sorry, drags. Like, I, I, I had to get out of the game quickly. I, <laughs> like, it was just so bizarre. I'm like, wow, this is how it works here. Like it was, it was funny, but like, so now you move up into the American hockey league and you're fighting guys like. He, that you that he watched mm-hmm. that we will and I'm like Kevin McClellan like or not Ke- yeah uh, Kevin McC- like that's wow that's yeah. awesome you know, so fun stuff um I, again it was great I went there and Jack Mack loved like I think he liked me and liked my style and I certainly showed up and fought start fought right away and fought people and tried to establish myself as a player that could play at that level and you know I think I had success I had enough success that. Uh, they, you know, they wanted to come, wanted me to come back. What's actually more intriguing was I was supposed to get called up to San Diego and Don Waddell, mm-hmm. who's running, uh, San Diego. Um, Rick Dudley was the head coach. That was the year the goals had, they didn't lose any games. Like they lost six games. They lost in the finals to Fort Wayne, but they didn't lose any games. They were ridiculous. And I just wasn't, they came out on a road trip and, I'm not sure if my hand was still not healed or I was getting – it was near the end of the year, so I don't think I was ready to go up yet. Mm-hmm. But I could have ended up in San Diego at that time too. So I was kind of caught in between both places. And is that how you ended up in San Diego the following season because there was an interest the season before? Yeah. So that – exactly. So I went to San Diego on a tryout. Um, uh, Harold Snaps was the coach of the – Harold Stamps was our coach in San Diego my first year. You talk about legends of the game, and certainly for people that I play with, Scotty Arneal, who was a longtime Winnipeg Jet NHL guy, was there. You know, John Anderson, who's coached in the National Hockey League, and we ended up being my roommate in San Diego, and fun, fun, fun stuff with him. And uh, you know, Daryl Dale DeGray, and uh, it just a real long list of you know established NHL players. So that was awesome. But 100% like. I ended up going to San Diego and didn't know if I was going to make it. Jack Max going like, Hey, we want him back. And him and Harold were really good friends. And Harold's going like, we're not, we're not sending him back. He's worth 
Um, and Jack's like, no, I really want them. And, you know, it's interesting when you look at your career and, you know, hindsight. And again, I was very fortunate. Don Waddell took a liking to me and played, I played for Don for a long time and I was pretty loyal to him and like, liked in the city, like cities I played in, knew they were going to be good teams, but you know, hindsight, looking back, if I would have, if I would have went back to Hamilton, you know, maybe my career, you know, maybe my games played in National Hockey would have, would have happened. So. Well, it's it's a nice consolation prize to play uh, pro hockey and get paid for it in San Diego. You were pretty fortunate to play in a couple of places that uh, that weren't too bad to play in when you weren't playing hockey. Right. No, I listen. My um, my city of my city my choice. In the, uh, I don't even know how to say it. The cities of that I played in were all amazing cities, and you know the hindsight twenty twenty. Looking back now, yeah, uh, yeah. I signed one NHL contract, which which was with the Detroit Red Wings, and mm-hmm. at the time Don Waddell had been with the Red Wings. The Red Wings just won a Stanley Cup. Don took over the Thrashers. Um, the Red Wings came came with a, an opportunity to sign. I had an opportunity to sign with them. They offered me a three year contract. They offered me a two year contract. They offered me a one year contract. And um, you know, I wasn't sure if I wanted to go to Adirondack, and I didn't know if I wanted to, you know, live in the snow and the cold. And certainly was like, well, you know, I made a d- business decision which was wrong at the time. Um, I was like, I'm gonna make myself available to Don Waddell at the end of the year, make it easy for for myself. So I signed a one year deal instead of a three year deal, which wasn't smart, but in hindsight, but uh, probably you know one of my favorite cities to live in and play ended up being Adirondack. It was just a really neat experience, and um, it was fun. It was just a nice place to play. Really enjoyed it there. When when you made San Diego, um, now this was the uh, first year you didn't spend any time in the East Coast League. You're you're in San Diego, you know, AAA hockey, let's say, uh, league where you're taking airplanes instead of buses. Um, not that you were satisfied with that, but was it sort of a, not a sense of relief, but almost like a, a sense of accomplishment that you're basically one step away from the NHL uh, as opposed to, you know, going back down to the East Coast League where you'd have to go a couple of rungs? Yeah, well, going back to my East, like when I, when I left Winnipeg my first year, I said, listen, I'm giving myself – three years to play in the American hockey league or IHL. Like I need to advance. If I don't make it, then, then I'm, then I've, then I'm not good enough. And so, you know, getting two, you know, one little taste and then a bigger bite of it in, in Hamilton, you know, again, validate, like I'm here to like, I'm good enough to play here. I just now need to find a team. So then, you know, when I made San Diego, it was great. I, at, at the time, uh, a legend in hockey's brother was trying out Steve Chelios Chris Chalice's brother was trying out. They lived in San Diego. Was there, and so he and I hung out a little bit. And there was a place in Cordelaine, not Cordelaine. There's a place in um, I can't remember the little town in, in just out of San Diego. Anyways, you could go cliff jumping into the ocean. And so we had gone up there, and I said, "Well, if I make this team, I'm gonna jump into the. I'll jump off the cliff." It was, you know, pretty high up. I'm like, "I'm gonna do it." So I was just telling my son the other day, who I was 18, because he was going, "I'm gonna go cliff jumping here." And I'm like, "Well, be careful. You're on the verge of doing some good stuff for yourself. Like, be smart." I said, "Don't be like me jumping in the ocean where you're not a great swimmer, <laughs> and having to get out up against the rocks and X, Y, and Z." And so, sure enough, I make the team and jump in. So it's kind of one of those victory things where you're like, "Hey, I accomplished the goal." I'm here to stay. Well, I'm, I made the team. Now I got to find a way to stay. And so fortunate that I did enough to stay for a year and then a second year and then traded to Orlando and then, you know, a bunch of different stuff happened after that. But, you know, again, it was, you know, again, we grew up in such a time where it was like, 
you had to you had to earn the next shift. You know, I tell our kids, earn the next shift, mm-hmm. earn your next opportunity. And you know, my my dad worked construction his whole life, and I just talked to my mom the other day. And she goes, oh, vacation? We never went on vacation. She, <laughs> said, she was like, your dad worked ten years straight without taking any time off, and he's and he's like, finally came home one day and he was like, I got to take a couple of days off. So they went somewhere and they called him back two days later and he's like right back at the job. And, you know, I, he, I always remember, he was like, I couldn't get off the, you know, at the time he was, he was operating, he was doing operating a big, uh, a crane or a front or something. And he was like, if I, if I call in sick, someone's going to be in that seat tomorrow. I'm not going to get the seat back. So I grew up in that environment where you got to like earn your day every day. And, um, so I just earn my next day, like just live another day, live another day, just do enough to get to the next day. You uh, you hooked on with San Diego right around the time the IHL was ready to explode, probably the glory days of the league. Uh, you played with a bunch of tough players at that time. Everybody was kind of loaded for bear in the in the IHL. Uh, so if I could ask you about a couple of your teammates, uh, one guy is Denny Lambert, who went on to play uh, quite a few games in the NHL. You played with him in San Diego. What are your memories of playing with Denny? Yeah, great guy. Again, another guy showed up every day. He was fortunate enough. He played the year, the year that I, my first year. I I can't remember who he played. His line mates were, but he, you know, the year before I was there, he put up some good numbers, um, fighting and you know, pim wise. And then the next year under Harold, because he was kind of a Harold type of player, mm-hmm. played. I don't know if he played with Hubie McDonough and Scotty Arneal. He played with somebody and put up some decent numbers that year. Mm-hmm which led him to, you know, sign with Anaheim and, and had a nice career. But, you know, again, a guy that showed up every day, um, competed, uh, fun personality, you know, just loved, loved life and loved the game and loved being around the rink and, you know, kind of my age. So they, they, they lived down by, they lived, they were young and single and lived down by the beach. It was great. Good stuff. Good memories. Uh, another guy who I think kind of goes under the radar a little bit, and I first uh, saw him play when he was with New Jersey as a youngster, uh, and that's Miles O'Connor. I, I think he's a lot tougher than people realize. Yeah, you know what? Miles is one of those guys. So, you know what? The key to the playing, in my opinion, of being a – if you're a legit heavyweight, you're a Bob Probert, you're a Tony Twist, you're a – you know, you're that realm. Like, that's your that's your gig. Mm-hmm. Um you know, Ty Domi, like, I, I, I don't know what happens if those are, if you were to ask those guys like, Hey, I love fighting or this or that. Like, I don't know if that's true or not. Like, you know, uh, what's, you know, I wasn't a guy, I know I did a lot of it. I wasn't a guy like, Oh my God, I can't wait to get to the rink and fight someone. Like that right. was just, it's not my personality. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for me, it was like, it's a way to keep playing the game. I love to play. So it was a, something I was willing to do and compete and battle, but it wasn't for me. It's like, you know, like I think Sasha would like like love fighting. You know, yeah. so Miles O'Connor, Miles was a tough guy, um, and he kind of had a little bit of a switch in him. Mm-hmm. So, and he was a pretty skilled. Like he had good skill sets too. He skated well. He shot the puck well. Like he was a good hockey player. Like a really good hockey player too. Mm-hmm. So he kind of straddled that. Like I don't really have to fight. Right. And so he had that option. So maybe you don't, you don't do it as much, you know, and you know, certainly I can, you know, I, I certainly look back and say like, I could have made different choices and not fought as much as I did. And, you know, I think, I think miles was a guy that was like, fuck, I'm good enough to play power play and I'm good enough to play these kind of situations. I don't need to fight every night. And when I decide to fight, you know, it's going to be on my terms. So, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, but I agree with you. Tough kid. Uh, another player, Trevor Halverson. Yeah, another guy kind of flew under the radar. Ended up having a nice career. Um, him and he and Denny were best friends and lived together down at the beach. And uh, he was a little bit more. He was more of a quieter guy. You know, he didn't. Um, you know, he was quiet. Mm-hmm. He was a quiet, tough guy. Like a guy that would show up and fight and fight anybody. But you know, I d- different. You know, you look at different people you fight. Just, he was a different kind of guy. Like just mm-hmm. a little bit more quiet. Um, quiet guy. I find him very quiet. Uh, Robin Bawa. Bowser, yeah. So Robin Bawa was different. You know, mm-hmm. Bawa, he's big guy. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have a really interesting Robin Bawa story. So he mm-hmm. and I played there. Okay, we had, you know, you look at San Diego, we had a pretty tough team there. You know, you had myself, you had Danny, you had Halverson, you had Robin Bawa there. Like we had, we had some, we had some meat in the lineup for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but I played, I think he was playing in, I was in Orlando. He was playing in Fort Wayne, and he and I got into it. And and then I still don't even know the details of it. If you you could probably go find it on the <laughs> Google me, you could probably go on the YouTube <laughs> and find it. But we have an altercation, and then we go off. To, he loses his mind, like mm-hmm. the referee. He's going crazy on the ice, and in our, the Orlando building, we have two tunnels, and they the rooms are like kind of side by each, and there's a mashing he's yelling at me and you don't jump tough guy cut you know tough guys don't jump tough guys and i'm like i remember this now that you say that yes the microphone's right there yes absolutely i'm like like, bowser i did not like not at all like Mm -hmm. what are you talking about like and i don't even know what what the precipice of the fight was I, i don't know any of it but i'm like what are you like he's literally yelling at me freaking out i'm like what are you talking about like i don't i don't understand what you're saying like I certainly didn't feel like I don't like I don't even know what started the fight, and so it was kind of I was taken aback and I like didn't I didn't understand it, you know, when it happened. And, uh, and it's funny. I think I think after that game, we ended up meeting out or seeing each other in downtown Orlando and having a beer together and you know having a conversation about it. But it was just bizarre. <laughs> but it's funny as you play with people and you fight them, and then or you play with people and then you end up playing being opposition. Sometimes you fight, sometimes you don't. So Robin Bow is certainly a big guy. Certainly, um, you know, I think he was a more of a, I think he wanted to be more of a, you know, a player, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't know. I, it's hard for me to say. I think, yeah. you know, I don't, I don't know what his numbers ended up bearing out, but obviously he had the size and the strength and the status, status to be, you know, a heavyweight or a guy that showed up every day. And if you guys weren't tough enough later in the season, uh, Dean Ewan joins the team. What are your memories of playing with Dean? Uh, Dean's a great guy. Um, you know, obviously comes from a hockey background and um, huge, just a huge man. Uh, great teammate, great personality. Mister, Bu- like he's, I know you know him well. Yeah. Like he's just, it's one of those guys that start laughing, can't stop laughing. Yeah. He just <laughs> cool and happy and enjoys life and stuff like that. So, you know, that was what's neat about most of these teams that I've played on. We always had two, three, four guys, so I never really felt like I was going it alone. So when you had somebody with his name and his reputation to your lineup, obviously you become, you know, you become tougher immediately. And, uh, and uh, yeah, just good, good people. Special, he's a special person for sure. You played with a guy who I, I'm pretty sure a lot of people probably hate. I don't, I'm not saying his teammates, definitely opponents. Uh, what's it like playing with Daniel Shank? <laughs> Shankster. Yeah. <laughs> the Shankster. Well, listen, he, 
here's another guy that was very talented, had skated very well, had good hands, ridiculous shot. You know, he's kind of got, he had a little bit of swagger, you know, French, French Canadian guy with some, from swagger. Um, you know, he kind of, you know, he played for us, then he went to Phoenix. Um, yeah, he's, yeah, again, it's, you have different yeah. personalities mm-hmm. on teams. So, you know, yep. we had an older veteran team, so kind of, think help keep him i'm not saying in line but yeah. you know kind of were help kind of mentor him and guide him a little bit so yeah and a talent very talented yes. person um you know probably not you know he didn't hang out with everybody but mm-hmm. you know he was part of our team he was made he's one of 21 or 22 guys that makes up a team that's dynamic he certainly was better you know he was when he was in our lineup he was gave us a chance to win because he'd score a goal or he'd, you know do something big or whatever and you know also you know so i mean different personalities and they don't all have to fit in perfectly, but he yep. fit in, he fit in the way that he fit in and contributed as he did. And um, yeah, interesting guy, hundred percent interesting guy. Uh, there's a couple of guys I just want to ask you about that, uh, that you scrapped that year, whether you remember them or not. And uh, two of them are selfish because I'm, I'm fans of theirs. One of them uh, and two of them are teammates. Uh, Mark LaBelle, uh, you fought him twice that year. And I believe that would have been the first time you would have uh, played against him. Do you remember uh, battling Mark LaBelle? I do remember him, but where was he playing? I forget. Uh, Cincinnati. Yeah, I had some good fights in Cincinnati. Um, yeah, I had some really good scraps in that building. I loved. I loved playing in that old garden. That was a, that was a great place to play. I played there when I was in Columbus. I remember fighting him. And again, it's what's weird about it is, it's like, you know, again, I don't, I don't. For my fighting days, it's like there's there's a handful of fights I go like I remember that fight mm-hmm. and, and a handful of people I remember going like that was that was intense and so I remember fighting him but I don't remember the details of it. I, my only other fight and I wasn't a fight was Rick Hayward who I played with in Capital District sucker yep. punched me and shattered one of my back molars oh, in, in in the old building uh, when I was when I was with Orlando mm-hmm. so and not good. No, that I, wasn't good. you fought him and LaBelle in the same game uh, back in, in their, their Cincinnati days. So See, at least I remembered one of them. Yeah. No, <laughs> I remember fight. I, I remember fighting him, but I, again, I yeah. don't, I don't remember the detail. And then you got, here's the other side of it. You know, when I would go, when I, again, I was a person that liked to watch video, right? Tapes. Yeah. You got to think about, think back. I guess we're, I know it's a long time ago, yeah. but think back 20 years ago 20 cup however many years that this would have been yeah i would have had to go and get the vhs tape mm-hmm. and then find a vhs player and go home and watch it yeah and so the video and the highlights weren't are not as available to you or to us now i'll, I'll give you a great example brad tree living you know is the general manager of the calgary flames mm-hmm. and uh when I first went out to LA, he was with Phoenix Coyotes assistant general manager. And, you know, I spent some time with him like tree, like what, give me the secret. Why didn't we make it? And, you know, he laughed at us or whatever. He, he said, Drake's get games changed. Now he goes like, you literally can, he goes, you go in between periods that you can watch every single shift that you had. Yeah. Or you can now even, it's even advanced since, you know, eight, 10 years ago. Like you can watch your shifts lot. You come off the ice, your shifts right there in front of you. You can see what you did right or did wrong. Right. You know, we, we didn't have the luxury of being able to have live feedback or live test scores 
or performance scores. So it was different. So I, you know, I don't, I don't, my recall on all these situations, I remember fighting them, but it was like, just, that was part of the game. Like that was part of the competition. I'm going to still ask you, and then if anything interesting, if it jogs the memory, then maybe we'll get a good story out of it. So, uh, But I totally get it. It's not like it was yesterday. And there you have part one of my chat with Barry Dreger. I'll present part two to you fine people next Monday. Uh, this is normally where, when I sign off, I tell everybody to stay safe. And uh, it's more appropriate now than ever. Uh, you know, like I said, I'm recording this Saturday night, and uh, Unri has not hit Long Island yet. And uh, I don't know exactly where it's hitting on the East Coast here, but uh, no matter where you're listening, if you're in the path of Unri, uh, please, everybody, stay safe.